This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Jenny Afil, author of the novel Weather. You know, my interest when I'm writing a book is always in trying to do something that I don't uh, haven't already done, that I don't already know how to do, which makes each book um, <laughs> feel very uh, like it might fall apart while I'm writing it. We'll be back with Jenny Afil in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft, Reminder, Membership Matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Jenny Afil, author of three novels, which include Last Things, The Department of Speculation, and Weather. Afil also writes children's books and nonfiction. She lives in upstate New York and teaches at Syracuse University in the low residency program at Queens University. Jenny Afil's new novel, Weather, tells the story of Lizzie, a graduate school dropout who works at a university library. Lizzie sidelines as an assistant for her former mentor, who hosts a podcast called Hell and High Water, which has an apocalyptic tone. Lizzie answers the emails of left and right wingers and their various questions about topics as diverse as climate change and biblical prophecies. 
Meanwhile, Lizzie is tending to her brother, who's a recovering addict, and her husband and child, while worrying about the impacts of climate change and an increasingly charged planet. Weather is told in a fragmentary style that illuminates the intensity of Lizzie's inner and outer worlds. I first asked Jenny Ophill about her evolution from more narrative fiction to a more fragmentary writing style. She said that her first novel, Last Things, did contain stories nested within other stories, but that accentuating the fragmentary structure was a breakthrough for her when she wrote Department of Speculation. She says writing in concentrated pieces more accurately captures how her consciousness moves. I then asked her if a reach for style was something she thought about when she wrote Weather. I love to go to retrospectives of artists and see um, the different ways, the different directions they've gone in and different sort of sense of evolution that you see in their work. And yet usually there's sort of um, a constant thematic concern tend to repeat even while they're being expressed differently. Um, And so I feel like, uh, you know, my interest when I'm writing a book is always in trying to do something that I don't uh, haven't already done that I don't already know how to do, which makes each book um, <laughs> feel very uh, like it might fall apart while I'm writing it. But I know that with weather, I wanted to, um, in some ways, keep the style of the foreman, and the, and the other I did, I wanted it to sort of move slightly differently. I, I had this idea that I wanted it to be um, sort of swirl and eddy, come in and out, um, much like weather itself. And so um, trying to figure out how to do that was a really interesting um, technical challenge. And I think, um, you know, actually the person I'm going to read from today, Joy Williams, um, you know, one of the things that she says is that once you learn how to do uh, any kind of, create any kind of effect in fiction, that then you must abandon it. Um, or you're just, <laughs> you're just being like a doppelganger of yourself, like sort of faintly imitating what you know how to do. Now, I, I'm not sure I'm as uh, hardcore about that as she is, but I do know that when I when I feel like I've, you know, quote unquote, figured out a way to do something, um, some of the joy goes out of writing and I usually want to experiment again. You mentioned the swirling and eddying. Is that something that you could articulate how you achieved that? Um, well, in department, for example, there's um, chapter breaks. And there's like 40, I don't know how many chapters there are, 47 or something. Um, so there's a hard break and there's a number at each one. Um, this one's in sections. Originally, I wasn't even going to have sections, but I realized that actually I was sort of falling into the the imitative fallacy. You know, it's like when you try to write uh, about a boring person, but you make it boring yourself. I was like, if I make it not have any structure, then it's going to feel chaotic in a way that the the reader cannot follow what I'm what I'm trying to do. So yeah, from for me, it was about having the different sort of elements of Lizzie's life kind of wash in and out over her. So, And also, it was about what I sort of conceived of while I was writing as a kind of ambient dread, that there was a backdrop, a sort of steady hum in the background. Um, and so that swirling and kind of the idea that something is about to take form but hasn't yet felt kind of important to me. So that was one of the reasons that I structured it the way I did. And I had things sort of slowly become less murky to her, things that she was afraid of. So let's talk about the things that were concerning you. So your character 
is Lizzie. She is the narrator and the main character, and she is a librarian who dropped out of higher graduate studies. She has a brother, Henry, who's an addict, a husband, Ben, a son, Eli. And she says about herself that that she squandered her promise by giving up on grad school. And she has many concerns. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about some of these. You know, most of us know a person like Lizzie who in some ways is, is, is very porous, like sort of everything gets in. And um, there's a sense that the problems of those around her, that she sort of, for better or for worse, immediately extends empathy to people and therefore doesn't necessarily know how to figure out where other people's problems um, end and hers, well, her, hers begin. So I think um, some of the things that she's thinking about in the book, one, she's thinking about, I think, the usual stuff of, of how to take good care of the people you love and what does it mean when you when you sort of feel like you are not managing that on a given day. Um, and then I think the situation with her brother, you know, she's always kind of had a what I think of as like a parentified relationship with him. She's always kind of been half parent, half sister. And the thing with Henry is that not only is he an addict, but he's partly drawn to the drugs that he takes. And as the story opens, he's actually sober. But because he he suffers from really extreme anxiety problems and, you know, with a sort of OCD slant to them, he has very intrusive thoughts, very dark thoughts that come in. And so one of the things that he, he does is he kind of loops around and around with the different obsessions and worries. So Lizzie grew up kind of trying to help him through that. And now she applies that to sort of everyone around her. And her other big concern, and this is partly through her, the work that she begins to do for her former mentor, Sylvia, is she becomes increasingly concerned about climate change and what what does it really mean that it is happening, as Sylvia tells her, so much faster than expected and that it's so much so much worse than the original forecast. So that begins a, a bit of a quest for her to figure out, is she being called upon? Is she being required? Does she need to require more of herself in terms of this kind of collective problem? And I like how you put the overall umbrella of her concerns, and then there's incipient concerns that are just starting to bubble. They kind of, I mean, when you think about our life today, they, in a global Global climate change affects everything. And then underneath it, we have something as large as politics, something as small as going to the dentist or being addicted to sleeping pills or, you know, struggling with, you know, you're you're so familiar in your marriage and you love that familiarity and you don't want to trade it in for the mystery of someone not caring about you. But at the same time, it's it's really hard sometimes to live in that daily life. And then there's also, you know, some Buddhist influences, which carried over also from, from, I'm sure it was in your last book, but it's also something that you said you've thought about a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I just, it's my own experience as a person, those sort of swings from, from micro to macro concerns, um, from sort of, uh, oh God, I forgot the applesauce and the tinfoil to, this place is going to be underwater in such and such years. Um, and I think that that's the way our brains work, um, especially with something that is a slow-moving kind of apocalypse. At many times, climate change kind of works in fits and starts. You know, we have these moments where uh, it's suddenly 
we see the ravages of it, whether it's horrible floods in Bangladesh or the fires in Australia. But the rest of the time, for people in the Western world who are still relatively insulated, it's more like, oh, I wonder if, if I should really be taking this plane. I wonder if I should be thinking more about what I need to do to try to change our political system so it's more able to respond to this emergency. I read this philosopher this named Timothy Morton, and he said something that really stayed with me when I was first kind of just struggling through my own interest and, and also, frankly, aversion to activism. He said, uh, hesitation is an ecological act. And I thought that was really interesting that, like, the first beginning, you know, we, we sometimes see those people that seem like they're living their life in such accordance to their conscience. But for most of us, there's days we do and there's days we don't. And um, in between, there's a lot of hesitation and there's a lot of doubling back. And that's what I was trying to capture in the form of the book. When you talk about climate change or what you're saying about maybe a slight aversion or a big aversion to activism is sort of this idea that if you really think about it, you know, maybe not getting on a plane is just the tip of the iceberg of what we have to do to stop the massive forces of, of climate change. But at the same time, we like our comfort and the sacrifice that it would take to do those things, we do not want to look at. And there, there was a line in your book, and I, I don't have it exactly pulled up, but I vaguely remember it. And it said something about that gossip is kind of what you do when you avoid your gaze looking at the thing that you really need to be looking at. It's a Buddhist thing. It says that in certain Zen monasteries that gossip is defined as talking about anything that isn't right in front of you. But I love, I love your interpretation of it because it's, <laughs> It is about, I mean, so much of this book is about what happens when we, we can't quite look at the thing we know we need to look at when we keep averting our eyes and because it's too difficult to face. Yeah, because sometimes we have to be concerned about going to the dentist because con being concerned about the planet dying is just too much. I've always been someone who, you know, I think like many writers, I'm pretty introverted, although I certainly have been to my share of marches and after this presidential election, written my share of postcards and knocked on my share of doors. In general, I feel like that sense of, well, does it even matter in the long run is a very powerful undermining thought. And what I guess writing this book for me was about and is for Lizzie is what if it isn't about individual action. I mean, we can all try to get our own houses in order, and there's many things you can do, but we've really been sold, in my opinion, kind of a bill of goods about if you change your light bulb, this, or if you do that, this. There are a few decisions that make a significant dent, you know, in sort of your lifestyle, and they're, they're the ones everyone knows. You can choose not to eat meat, you could choose not to fly, and you can choose not to have children. All of those are pretty big sacrifices that people would struggle to make. So many have. But what I discovered when I was, you know, researching this book and, and what for me was indeed like the hopeful part of the book is that I think for me, the sacrifice, which turns out to be less of a sacrifice than I thought, is that I, I needed to, to join with others. I needed to stop thinking and reading about this on my own. And I needed to realize that I had to be involved in collective action. And so that 
has been um, a huge change for me. And it, the website that goes with the book, Obligatory Note of Hope, which talks about different different organizations in different ways that you might find sort of a little place to stand and think about what you can do from there. I read this fascinating book, and it to me it was really one of the, the best piece of information I came across, which was um, by this political scientist at Harvard, Erica Chenoweth, and she decided that, you know, we don't actually have any facts about what works, what kind of resistance works when, especially when there's a um, a political regime that is really repressive. How is that overthrown? How is that changed? How are big social changes made? So she did all these studies, and, and one of the things that surprised her was she found that nonviolent civil disobedience was twice as likely to be than armed resistance. But the one that really stayed with me was it turns out that the tipping point for real political change is when 3.5% of a population get involved in a movement. That's when, when they look over and over again. That's when with civil rights, that's when with LGBTQ strides we've made, that's been when dictators have been overthrown. And I was like, wow, that's actually a pleasingly small number, 3.5%. And so I guess for me, my sacrifice if it even needs to be framed that way, was, all right, I think I think I need to be part of that 3.5%. That offers some hope. And in my experience of reading, I mean, I, I did, I worked on this book for about seven years, and one of the various incarnations, you know, that I went through was, um, first I felt like I had to sort of understand the science a bit. And one of the things I noticed right away was, you know, that it, if you read books about climate change, it immediately goes into just a series of numbers and statistics. And it can feel a little bit like a wall you're trying to get through. You know, does everyone know what it means to worry that something is 350 parts per million? Like, I didn't know what that meant when I started writing this book. And a lot of people don't know what that means. But what I realized at a certain point was, I don't want to put numbers in this book. Other people have done that well, um, in nonfiction books mostly, but also in some novels. I was like, I think I want this book to be more about the feel of moving from intellectual knowledge to emotional understanding and action. So there's only one number that I put in the book, and that's the year of climate departure for New York City, which is 2047. And climate departure just means like when the we no longer aligned with any historical record of what the temperature should be like in New York. So yeah, there's a couple other times in the book where I say, that Lizzie went and looked at something and that the numbers disturbed her, but I don't say what the numbers are. Lizzie's professor has this podcast that's kind of about the end of the world. And one of Lizzie's jobs is to answer letters. And she gets emails that are kind of unanswerable, like why do humans like applause and how did we end up here? And she gets a lot of letters that are very based in religion, you know, maybe getting to the point of what is the relationship between the rapture and climate change? Like if, if the Bible says it's all going to end, yeah. why, why should we care? I mean, that's actually one of the really interesting undercurrents that goes on with the climate change discussions in our country is that America does have a huge evangelical population. And many of those people believe that climate change, to the degree that they believe in it scientifically is just a sign that the rapture is approaching. So it doesn't make sense to go out of your way to try to save things because actually this world is going to be uh, wiped away as we know it and uh, a new world 
will come into place, and the, those who have been saved will be raptured up, and the rest will live through terrible tribulations, um, which is is actually sort of shocking when you, if you don't know about th- that sort of narrative, which is an, a fairly common one if you are in those circles. I grew up with just enough of that, although it's not where my family ended up, that familiar to me, not surprised by it. And in, in many ways, she's rejected the religion that she grew up with. But on the other hand, she also realizes that there was some element of it some element of, of service and of humility um, that she needs in her life. One of the things that I think is, is powerful in the Christian tradition is is the idea, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. And it's meant to to be the opposite of, of, of what sociologists call the just world hypothesis, which is basically you get what you deserve and you deserve what you get. Um, because it allows for the humility that you could change places with any of these people, these people you see on the news who are going through terrible things, and also maybe the neighbor down the road who you, you don't understand why they think what they do. So I feel like what would it mean to have more humility is something that Lizzie is struggling with throughout the book. It's interesting because a lot of the book is sort of in this maybe amorphous state, but you also see Lizzie searching for some kind of certainty. Like there's some points in the book, you know, one happens fairly early on where she basically divides the world into a dichotomy. The dichotomy, if you want to talk about that part, is there's facts and opinions. And that to me is what I see in the, in the whole discourse rubbing up against each other. And then of course the, the, the sense that those are different things has also that's fallen away a bit. A lot of people believe that their opinions are facts or that facts as used to be kind of mutually agreed upon that certain things were facts. There's now a very, you know, powerful rebuttal that everyone can always say, well, that's, that's fake news. And, you know, there's this Yale historian who I read and follow and think he's just a incredibly astute observer of what's been going on in our country. He wrote a book called On Tyranny, which I quote briefly in Weather. Um, but one of the things he talks about is that democracy can't really survive if there's no mutually agreed upon uh, beliefs. And if everything is supposedly up for grabs and subjective, then there's not an ability to build to build the common ground that we need to move forward and you know have government you know, by the people, for the people. So where Lizzie ends up towards the end of a book is really a belief that she's abandoned those ideas of like American exceptionalism and this won't happen here and this we're we're safe here and all those ideas which of course were only really true for certain subsets of Americans anyway but um she's abandoned that and and what she to me what's a a key moment in the book is is she tells that piece of search and rescue lore which is real um, which I just loved when I came across, which is that it's very, very common when people are uh, out on a search team looking for people that the person they're looking for just walks right past them, and they don't they don't recognize the rescue team as their rescue team. And, in fact, it's common that they have to tackle the person because they're in such a trance that they just walk right by. And I guess the reason I set the later part of the book, the second to last part of the book, which is actually what I'm going to read from a little bit later, is I wanted to jump ahead, and uh, I've never done this before, but set it in what will be the 
upcoming election in November. And just this idea, like, what if we're just walking past each other and we're our own search party? You know, what if you look at history, change has really only happened when, when people stop doing that, when people notice who might be looking for them and look for them too. One of the parts that I really liked getting towards the end was, you know, you have all of these these big ideas and we're looking for, you know, like a good way out, a positive way out to help heal all this. And I know last time we talked, you talked about going to the library and picking out little fragments from books you read and you keep them sort of in a jar or something where you can pick them out and look at them later, maybe use them in the book. And there was one that was um, from the Code of Maritime Signals. I loved the simplicity of the messages, which were, you know, I wish to communicate with you. Stop carrying out your intentions and watch for my signals. I am on fire. Nothing can be done until the weather moderates. So I'm wondering about this. Uh, I did find that somewhere. In the novel, actually... It's um, it's Will, the the man she has the crush on, who gives that to her. You know, he's talked to her in the past about various disaster things and and also about search and rescue and various things. So it's from a real book that I did come across, and I wanted it to both have that simplicity that you're you're talking about, and also in some ways they can't directly say what they feel about each other. So when it says, I wish to communicate with you, stop carrying out your intentions and watch for my signals. I am on fire. Nothing can be done until the weather moderates. It's meant to, you know, have that double meaning. Um, and so that was a real, uh, real find for me, that book. I think I, I think I found it in just a pile of books someone left on the street once. And it's just been on my, <laughs> it's been on my shelf. And I pulled it down one day and was lucky enough to find that section. And did you kind of comb through literature and like little snippets you found to include again, or did, was this a little different? No, I did do that. And, um, and I just became kind of obsessed in trying to figure out how, because obviously uh, you know, we are not the first people to face these kind of really dark times. And I became kind of obsessed with trying to read about how other people in different moments in time had, what have they done? In my own mind, I called it emotional prepping. You know, like there's all those things about, oh, you know, you can use a tuna can for the oil in it and make a, make a candle. But I also was wondering like, what did they do? How did they keep their, how did they keep from, from losing heart? I put some of them in the book, but almost all of them are on the uh, website now. There's um, a section called tips for trying times. And it's just all quotes from different books, a real range of things. And that's where most of them ended up. So, yeah, if you're curious, you could take a look at them. Will you repeat that website again? Obligatorynoteofhope.com. As we moved toward the end, there's more and more talk about prepping and learning that. And the last two sections, which are five and six, I noticed you had a few moments. I if it was earlier in the book, you'll have to tell me because I, I don't think I noticed, but you talk out to the reader. You have a you there. You write, and then mm-hmm. it is another day and another and another, but I will not go on about this because no doubt you too have experienced time. And then there's another one even closer 
to the end where, again, the narrator sort of talks to people. They're walking through the woods and they say something like, how will I know you? Yes, I, I wanted there to be moments, I think of it, I think because I did, uh, you know, I was like a drama girl for a while in high school. I think I always think of it in terms of, of, of theater talk, of breaking the fourth wall, right? So you suddenly are addressing the audience. And there's only a few moments earlier on in the book. But as she begins to think more of who might be out there that she doesn't know, who feels the same way or who she might join join forces with. I wanted to start breaking that. The other time that I do it is quite a bit earlier where she's talking about after her brother's wife has a baby and she's talking about what it was like when she first left her baby between him. And on the way home, she's talking about how she was out in the country. And, and one of the things she says is, it was so green, you wouldn't believe it. Um, I wanted to start a moment of sort of, I think of it like that there's some slippage where the project of the novel as a novel, that my voice breaks through a little bit as an author versus as just a character. So it's metafictional in that way. And I want to just briefly talk about the ending. Personally, when I read the last line, I like burst into tears. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you got there. And I, I definitely won't, you know, read the line, but it it does harken back to a different question that Lizzie has, you know, throughout the book. She's going to a Buddhist meditation class and, and one of the questions kind of posed to her was if they knew what core delusion was or what their core delusion is. And and Lizzie, yeah. you know, doesn't really know or or the teacher never said it. And I felt like the the novel was kind of working towards that. Yeah, I was actually like furious because there was a review in <laughs> book forum that like just the last line of the review also was saying what the last line of the book was. I was like, oh man, come on. <laughs> I spent so much time writing that ending. But um, but the idea, I guess, with the ending was, I mean, for me, it was a really fun and fascinating challenge, but I also was just tearing my hair out because I had decided that I did want to set the last two sections in the future. I wanted there to be another election. I tried to figure out a way to write it so that either way, that things go in November, you could still read the ending. And so one of the things that I was thinking about, as you mentioned, you know, the, the teacher, Margot does say, she says at one point, what is the core delusion? Which is quite a bold thing to say, of course, because it's like, it's saying there's one core delusion <laughs> in the world. Um, and, and the joke originally is, you know, it's just that uh, nobody seems to know and, and she doesn't bother to tell us. So that happens earlier on in the book. And then at the end, I do finally say what she was told the core delusion is. But in the section where they voted, it's just a little bit after that. And the last scene is them house sitting up in the country. And we get a little glimpse of her brother with his daughter. And we see that he's holding steady for now. And then Lizzie and her husband are in bed. And there's various things that she's thinking about. She's watching her dog. She's thinking about things. And and then the part where they hear a sound on the roof and they wake to it, she thinks it's gunshots in the distance, which is one of the things, of course, that we hear threatened as a possible outcome after this election. 
and her husband says, no, it's, it's just walnuts on the roof. Because those two things actually sound identical. If you live in the country, they, they sound really, really identical. And I wanted the ending to be something where it's been fascinating to me because some of my more, I'd say, optimistic friends are like, oh, I'm so glad that uh, she has him at the end to kind of talk her out of her paranoia. And then some of my other friends are like, I thought it was so interesting how he still didn't believe it was gunshots. <laughs> so um, I did want to kind of play around with that that idea that it, it could be either, although I, of course, I have a sense of what it is. I really enjoyed just trying to go – I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a filmmaker, and she said, you know, I just wish more people – she does experimental films. I just wish more people would go big at the end. Just go big. Risk something. And I thought, no, this last line is a risk, but I'm going to – I think I'm going to do it. Well, thank you for going big. <laughs> well, I don't know if it succeeded, but I just thought that like saying something that is uh, philosophical at the end of a book feels pretty risky in a way, because like if it falls flat, it falls flat. And then it's like, oh, you wasted the last line of your book. So, But ultimately, of course, just when you're writing, you have to just go towards what what you're imagining. It's not exactly that I don't think of the reader when I'm writing. I do but I don't really think of the reader in terms of, like, will they like this? Will they understand this? Will they, you know, my experience is that readers are vastly underrated for their intelligence and ability to follow things. I, I think that people always think you have to spell so much out in a novel or you'll lose your readers. And that that's not really what I have found. I think it can be more collaborative. They can look at the white space and see the implications and and fill it in themselves. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to or influenced you as a writer? Yeah. It's from Taking Care by Joy Williams, and it's a scene in which um, an older minister is taking care of his uh, granddaughter because his daughter has run away and his wife is in the hospital. Jones has the baby on his lap and is feeding her. The evening meal is lengthy and complex. First, you must give her vitamins, then, because she has a cold, a dropper of liquid aspirin. This is followed by a bottle of milk, eight ounces, and a portion of strained vegetables. He gives her a rest now, so the food can settle. On his hip, she rides through the rooms of the huge house as Jones turns lights off and on. He comes back to the table and gives her a little more milk, a half jar of strained chicken, and a few spoonfuls of dessert. The baby enjoys all equally. She is good. She eats rapidly and neatly. Sometimes she grasps the spoon, turns it around, and thrusts the wrong end into her mouth. Of course, there's nothing that cannot be done incorrectly. Jones adores the baby. He sniffs her warm head. Her birth is a deep error, an abstraction, born in wedlock but out of love. He puts her in the playpen and tends to the dog. He fills one dish with water and another with kibbled biscuit. The dog eats with great civility. He eats a little kibble and then takes some water, then kibble, then water. Jones now thinks about his own dinner. He opens the refrigerator. The ladies of the church have brought brownies, venison, cheese, and applesauce. There are turkey pies, pork chops, steak, haddock, and sausage patties. A brilliant light exposes all this food. There's so much of it. It must be used. A crust is formed around the punctures in a can of pet. There's a clear bag of chicken livers stapled shut. Jones stares unhappily at the beads of moisture on cartons and bottles. 
at the pearls of fat on the cold cooked stew. He sits down. The room is full of lamps and cords. He thinks of his wife, her breathing body deranged in tubes and begins to shake. All objects here are perplexed by such grief. Can you talk about why you chose that? What I love about this passage is her ability to move in one paragraph within a, a very sort of everyday moment feeding a baby. She describes with such precision sort of his joy in doing that and what it's like to watch the baby eat. And and there's little jokes in there too, like, of course, there's nothing that cannot be done incorrectly when she puts the spoon in backwards. But then when he moves to his own dinner, suddenly the tone and the texture of the passage changes. At first, it just seems to be describing food, and then the food starts to seem sort of repulsive. There's a crust, there's um, beads of moisture and pearls of fat. And I think my favorite part is suddenly he goes from this domestic scene that is completely comprehensible and even warm to the room is full of lamps and cords. And the cords of the lamp remind him of the tubes attached to his wife in the hospital. So there's this beautiful associative moment. And and then I just think that the last line is so powerful. All objects here are perplexed by such grief. Um, because what it does is it zooms out. It zooms out from the human into um, a sort of vast world where uh, love and grief and all the the moments we experience in between are perplexing to the to the non-humans around us. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yes, I'm going to read the. Um, second to last section, um, because it doesn't particularly give anything away, but I also ended up um, talking about it in this interview. So this is the moment that jumps ahead in time and is about the uh, election. And Sylvie is the mentor who has sort of given up on all of this and moved to the desert at this point. Sylvia calls me. All that sky makes her more patient now when I talk about the mystics. There's that idea in the different traditions of the veil. What if we were to tear through it? Welcome, say the ferns. We've been expecting you. Of course, the world continues to end, Sylvia says, then gets off the phone to water her garden. If you think you are lost, beware bending the map. Don't say, maybe it was a pond, not a lake. Maybe the stream flowed east, not west. Leave a trail as you go. Try to mark trees. Paper ballots, paper ballots, everyone said. But I put the final card in a machine. There's a bunch of us now milling around outside the building. Put your hackles up, I think. Hello? Hello? What is, what is your emergency? They say people who are lost will walk trance-like past their own search parties. Maybe I saw you. Maybe I passed you on my street. How will I know you? Trust me, you'll say. Do you want to say a little more about that? I was interested in trying to bring in some of the prepper-like tips that she's learned throughout the book, but here at the end, uh, almost reconstitute them to be about something else. So the idea of being lost, um, which I think 
I mean, I'll speak for myself, but uh, I certainly have felt a lot um, in the last few years trying to figure out um, what to do as a person and as a citizen in the current climate. So one of the things that I think we were talking a little bit about earlier is just this idea that we we often, in these moments of, of emergency, we try to talk ourselves out of it. We say that, oh, it's not really, I don't think it's really what I think it is, or I don't think it's that, it's that. Um, and social social scientists call this, or psychologists call this the normalcy bias, that basically our brain is used to following certain templates, and when we don't match with one, it keeps going back and saying, well, this hasn't happened before like this, so it must not really be happening now. So the part about bending the map is expression that search and rescue people use, and it means that someone's lost. And they keep saying, instead of admitting that they're lost and waiting for help, they keep telling themselves, "Okay, wait. Uh, I think I think I've I think I just have it wrong. I think it is a pond. This is a pond. That's why I'm looking at a pond, etc." So it's saying, "Leave a trail and try to mark trees," which, of course, ballots are paper and trees. And so I wanted to use that as a bridge to the next section. A couple other things that are going on in this passage. Earlier, Sylvia has explained to her that uh, disaster psychologists say that what people do during a disaster is the first thing they do is called milling. Everyone wanders around trying to figure out if it really is a disaster. And this is, shows up in interesting ways. Like in when there's an emergency like 9-11, a lot of people spend a lot of time at their desks, like arranging, rearranging things on their desks. Or our brain is just basically still telling us that it's a normal situation. Um, so that's why I say there's a bunch of us milling around outside the building. And the put your hackles up, I think, is a reference to how Will, the um, kind of survivalist guy that she has a crush on, um, he tells her that when he was a war reporter that there was a feeling before war that was physical, not mental. And it was like, like when a dog puts their hackles up. So the next part is just, uh, I think I, I just think it's interesting that we have as a actual, that the routine way to answer the phone for 9-11 is to say, what is your emergency? And I began thinking of the idea of looking at people, which is one of the things that, you know, Lizzie's always doing, and just wondering in your mind, what is your emergency? And then trying to figure out how you might might help them with their emergency. And that's where I'm walking past the search parties. And as you brought up before, the idea of like suddenly bringing in the you. So here it's a direct address. Maybe I saw you. Maybe I passed you on my street. How will I know you? Trust me, you'll say. That also echoes back an earlier part of the book where she's sort of joking about the tropes in the um, action movies that her brother likes to watch. In the action movies, the hero always says, I have to save you, you know, you're about to you're about to die and uh, do this and then the hero says trust me. And so I was just playing off that idea of like I don't think any of us have the answers. I think we have to trust that there's still something we can do even if we're about to die. <laughs> <laughs> so it's both dark and light, I guess. Where do you write? I have a little study in my house which is lovely. Um sometimes I write in the library if there's too much going on at my house. And occasionally I will write at my friend's house down the road if he's away. And once in a blue moon, I go to an artist colony, which is always 
heaven and right there. But mostly, yeah, in my study. I need a I need a door that can close. So libraries, unless I have a Carol, I can only kind of edit. I can't really write new stuff. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? That's a good question. <laughs> when I read that question, I was like, oh, but do I get away from writing? Um, I would say that I spend time with my family or friends. I go to movies, go for walks sometimes. It's hard for me to ever truly get away from writing. It's it's interesting after you finally finish and turn in a book because it's almost like for weeks afterwards I'm still still putting things in it in my mind. Um, but, yeah, I feel like, wow, now's the period where I can actually think about other stuff. But I wish I was one of those cool writers who, like, gardens or cooks or I don't have any hobbies, not at all. You know, I, don't, I don't have a single other talent <laughs> in the world. So mostly it's just being social and um, spending time with, with, with my family or friends. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have one friend who's a writer that is usually the first person I show it to. I tend to go pretty far into a book before I show it to anyone. And then I have another friend or two. But in general, I like to I like to be pretty done with a book before I show it. And then, um, then usually people have good things to say. My editor, of course, um, had lots of really useful comments that I then incorporated. But because I don't write very plotted books, sometimes I get a little bit thrown if there's too much input early on because I'm still trying to figure out what, what I want it to be. So if, if, if I show it too early and someone says, oh, I really like this or, or I think this character should be expanded or I, I find it sometimes has a sort of, um, I don't know what the word is exactly. It's like a deadening effect. Like I, I sort of lose my own sense of what I want to do. But once I completed, you know, once I have a beginning, middle, and end, then um, I really, really rely on a bunch of smart writer friends and my editor and agent to help me with the structural things because one of the things about writing in a kind of associative way is um, I can err on the side of, like, not putting enough on the page. So I need to know if there's moments where it actually just doesn't make any sense. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, I don't think I deal with rejection all that well. You get better at it as you get older. But, yeah, I always feel kind of, you know, like stabbed in in the heart by by some kind of uh, sense that this or that project is going to fall apart. But that said, I'm a little bit of a – I do just have this sort – maybe because I am a one-trick pony, I don't have other things I'm able to do. Other than, you know, there's the other things I like to do are teach. I just kind of, when I get rejected, with this novel, actually, an early, very early version of it that I did show to one of my friends, and and um, this is why she's such a good reader. She basically said, uh, it's not coherent. It it doesn't make sense. Uh, and I felt awful. I believe I took to my bed and was I felt quite miserable for a few few days. But then I wrote her a card that said, Thank you for telling me my, my novel was bad. <laughs> and I and I went back and tried to find where I had turned the wrong direction. So yeah, the part of me that that just is always still kind of interested in getting back into the novel. The rejection feels awful, but at a certain point, the only thing that makes me feel better is to go back in and work. And what is your favorite word? 
well, I don't know if it's my favorite word, but I did come across this word the other day, and I was like, oh, I would like to find a way to use this word in my life. It's gormless. I think it's more common in England. It basically means like clueless or oblivious. I thought it's a really good word. Thank you so much. I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time for this. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Jenny Offill. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Jenny from a few years ago, where we talked about her novel, The Department of Speculation. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interview that patrons will receive as extras include last week's guest, Tishani Doshi, talking about the realities of the southern Indian beach town she lives in that she highlighted in her novel, Small Days and Nights, an extra 13 minutes of Jenny O'Phil talking about her novel Weather, and a writing tip from Kevin Wilson, author of Nothing to See Here. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Chuck Palahniuk, Anne Enright, Deb Olin Unferth, and Anna Solomon. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.